Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Go, begin, go ahead and begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So we come to our fourth talk of our retreat, and we've sort of been talking about or trying to understand how to deal with sin and scandal in the church. Certainly now, I think, if you were going to describe the situation that we're facing, at least Church of the United States, you'd say that there seems to be a darkness descending. Storm clouds are rolling in, and a big storm is here, or a big storm is coming. And it extends to almost every aspect of the church, even to the hierarchy, the bishops and priests. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I know some of y'all have heard homilies have been floating around about communist infiltration and stuff. I mean, half those guys I don't think are smart enough to be able to do that. But, you know, I'm not one who necessarily believes in any of that. Time will tell. And I know that I've talked to people and they fear a coming persecution or some great purgation of the church. Again, I have no idea. People are being accused. Fingers are being pointed. Catholics are angry, shamed, and fearful. And so I want to talk a little about, about these storm clouds and this darkness. Darkness in a certain sense represents trial, suffering, despair, but it represents primarily sin. As we saw last night, it should be no, no surprise that there's darkness in the church. The church would have to face some time period of darkness and storms because she is the costumeratrix. Sin exists within the church. That passage from the Song of Songs, she is black but beautiful. She is dark but beautiful. There's going to be a certain darkness. There also is going to be beauty. The thing, though, that I think we can say is while most people would want or would think the church to be sort of a haven or a sanctuary for safety and light and joy, it seems that there's so much darkness, not only the church, but it reflects the darkness and the sin that is present in our society, the, the, the storm clouds that seem to have been growing over the course of the past one to 200 years. You think of the 20th century, two world wars, the spread of communism, nearly a hundred million people dead. That's more than every other century and year combined. So much death and destruction. So much so that John Paul II called it the, the culture of death. It's sort of connected to that, but yet in the Western culture with abortion, sexual sin, euthanasia, you turn on the news, and there's so much of violence and destruction, war, and terrorism. And that's all sort of there, along with the, the rise of atheism. You're going to see it sort of as a philosophical system, 
and that it moves to become a political force. Now it's just a cultural reality. So many people who not only are atheists, but seem to be anti-theists. They're against God. And a young generation, while they may not claim to be theists, or what they call nons, they're not religious, they're not anti-religious, they're just purely and completely secular. It's the triumph of, or the apparent triumph of secularism. We're living in that secular age. What makes it worse is we sort of look at this century, and we look at the time today, and we look at the situation of the church. Some people may say that the culture, the world, the church has been abandoned by God. Where's this loving, merciful God we talked about? Why isn't he doing anything? Why isn't he stopping evil from happening? Why isn't he helping these young people? Why isn't he stopping all of this terrible evil? Why does he tolerate it? And this even more makes people question not only the existence of God, but the actual goodness of God. And so what can we do, not just to, to face and wrestle with the reality of sin, but sin manifested is so much darkness, so much gloom, so much filth in the church and in the world. And what I want to do is propose, and this I guess is going to be a certain sense the most mystical of all of our talks, even though it's not going to be the most joyful of all of our talks. I'm going to propose that we have two gods, two individuals who can sort of mark the way and point the way to what I think may be happening in our age and in the church as we face such darkness. And there are two of the greatest saints of the 20th century. One we've already talked about, St. Therese of Lisieux, and the other is another Therese, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And why do I propose both of these individuals as guides or mentors in facing this darkness and facing the storm clouds is because both of them we know in their own personal spiritual lives experienced intense spiritual darkness and very, very intense trials of faith. St. Therese's trial of faith, her dark night, happened just in the last few months of her life. She was sick with tuberculosis and this just onslaught of temptations against the faith attacked her. An intense darkness, and you can see a lot of it, particularly in her last conversations. In just a couple of quotes, she said, Now, all of a sudden, the mists round me have become denser than ever. They sink deep onto my soul and wrap around it. One of the more famous quotes, It's all a dream, this talk of heavenly country. All right, all right, go on longing for death, but death will make nonsense of your hopes. It will only mean a night darker than ever, the night of mere non-existence. Of course, she's not claiming that. That's the temptation. She's wrestling with it. It's the darkness of Therese, and it gets much worse than that, so much so that in the earlier manuscripts that were published, a lot of this was left out. They didn't want to scandalize people. They wanted to have this nice little picture of St. Therese with the roses and her, her little rosy cheeks. And this is not what Therese was. She was tough. She was loving. But she went through this trial that didn't make any sense. 
Why did she have to go through this? And still people are writing about it today. Then, of course, now we know about Mother Teresa. For the last 50 years, or for 50 years of her life, this intense period of darkness, of dryness, of feeling abandoned by Jesus. And so we all probably have read or know the book, Come Be My Light. She said, if I ever become a saint, it will become surely be one of darkness. Be, uh, I will continually be absent from heaven to light the light of those in darkness on earth. We're going to get back to that quote and why that's important. She says, in the darkness, Lord my God, whom am I that you should forsake me? the child of your love, and now become as the most hated one, the one you have thrown away as unwanted and loved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. The amazing thing is, throughout the whole 50 years, she never stopped having this desire for Jesus, the desire to quench his thirst, the desire to smile and not let anyone know what was going on. And so about 10 years after her death, when all of this was revealed in the book, Come Be My Light, People freaked out, particularly the secular press. How could you have an atheist who's a saint? Of course, we know that Mother was not an atheist. She was going through something much worse. What do we make of that? Why, do, why, why are these two extremely holy women go through such terrible trials of faith, trials of darkness? Well, again, most of us here, I'm sure, have done enough spiritual theology or know that in spiritual theology, particularly the Carmelite tradition, there is this tradition of darkness, the nights of the soul, nights of the spirit. And when our spiritual life begins, the Lord feeds us with consolations. But there comes a time then that we're going to have to be purified, purified of our attachments to the flesh, purified of our things to the world. And so we begin with that night of the senses that happens right there, the passing into the fourth mansion. And all of a sudden, things get difficult. We are supposed to cooperate with it. People don't know what's going on. This purgation begins, and that's when many people drop out of the way. We leave. But then if you go on, it gets even worse. The dark night of the soul. Feeling abandoned by God, quite possibly. This is on a way to the, the unitive co connection with the Lord. So this is the nada of St. John of the Cross. But the key to understand is, and again, Father Champagne is much more of a spiritual guru than I am, is that this night of the senses and the night of the soul are both purgative, primarily for our own purification. That we are being purified so that we can find union with Christ, the bridegroom of our souls, passing from that purgative way to the unitive way. The dark night of the senses, the dark night of the soul, are meant for our own personal purification. But is this the darkness? Is this the trial of faith that the two Teresas experienced and encountered? And while indeed, I'm sure that God could purify, and I'm sure did purify them through that, my argument is going to be primarily no. Primarily these things were not meant for them. You know, if Mother Teresa 
had to go through 50 years of purification to be holy, we are all in a lot, a lot of trouble, all right? <laughs> really. You know, and what St. Therese went through wasn't too pleasant either. Surely there are things they need to be purified of, but I'm going to say no, it wasn't. It was meant for something else. And I think if we look at their own lives, and to a degree, I'm more of an expert on Therese than on Teresa, that we will begin to understand what they went through and the argument of why primarily they went through it and why then they are guides for us. Without getting into long sort of discussions or analyses of their experiences, yes, they went through darkness. It sure looked like the dark night of the soul. There were temptations against faith, trial, suffering, feeling abandoned by God. But the truth is, they experienced it, not primarily for themselves, but more for others. More for other people. Rather than purgative, what they encountered, what they endured, was redemptive. It was redemptive. Now we can use a lot of different sort of terms or terminology for this. We can say they went through it for others. We can say there was a redemptive value. We can say to a great degree they went through it to have solidarity with people in darkness. Solidarity with people who were suffering. Now, Therese, it seemed, understood this. Understood either this is what God's purpose was for her, or at least it's something that she could offer up. For Therese, she offered this up, yeah, out of love for Jesus, but she saw it as a chance to unite herself in the darkness and the despair of atheists and unbelievers, which, of course, this was sort of on the rise in the latter part of the 19th century. Therese said, your child, however, O Lord, has understood your divine light. And she begs pardon for her brothers, the brothers of the atheists. She is resigned to eat the bread of sorrow as long as you desire it. She does not wish to rise up from this table filled with bitterness at which poor sinners are eating until the day set by you. Can she not say in her name and in the name of her brothers, have pity on us, O Lord, for we are poor sinners? O Lord, send us away justified. May all those who are not enlightened by the bright flame of faith one day see it shine. O Jesus, if it is needful that the table soiled by them be purified by a soul who loves you, then I desire to eat this bread of trial at this table until it pleases you to bring me into your bright kingdom. That's pretty clear. Therese understood the, the atheism, the, the sin that was going on, and she calls these people her brothers, not these atheists that are terrible. And she saw her own trial of faith as a solidarity with their darkness, not something she wanted to get rid of. But again, normally, whenever we have darkness come, why is this happening? I want some consolations. Get rid of it. Therese saw this as coming from the hand of the Lord and that she was able to, in this darkness and this trial, have some solidarity, but also bring about some redemption. And one day, she would be with them in that bright light of faith in heaven. It's interesting to note that Therese was a contemporary of Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin, Freud, all of them, that led to the ascendancy of atheism. 
It's actually, <clears throat> I forgot where I read this, that when Therese went from Lisieux down to Rome, uh, they stopped for a night in a hotel in Paris. And I think they went through the registry, and Nietzsche also stayed in that same hotel. It's an interesting connection. Maybe not, I don't think it's in the same night or something. But at least there is an historical connection. You know, Nietzsche was the, the one who said, God is dead and we've killed him. It's a much longer quote, but at least you understand that connection there. The mother, too, experienced darkness. And with hers, like Therese, this deep desire for Christ. And from her quotes, we see it caused her tremendous suffering. Now, Champagne, Father Champagne is the expert on this and has all kinds of quotes. Indeed, you can look at it that she saw hers as a union with Christ and his suffering, um, abandoned and alone. But she also saw, said, as you could saw in the quote before, that she would be continually absent from heaven to light the light of those in darkness on earth. You know, Mother's original call to come be my light in those dark hovels. And so for her, you can argue, and again, I couldn't find an exact quote that said that she saw this in the same way that Therese did, is that she could share in their darkness, and sharing in that darkness be the light to others. So there's a sense, of course, mother in solidarity with the poor, living like the poorest of the poor. And so in doing so, hers maybe wasn't so much solidarity, but maybe that light that is being brought into the hovel. Does that make sense, Father Champagne? Does that sound like a decent interpretation? I'm sure I could have more that could corroborate that. But this is what helped her make her work so effective. Is because she wasn't just like, hey, I'm helping you, you're poor. What's the real true poverty? Mother understood it. It wasn't just physical poverty. It was spiritual poverty. It was loneliness. It was despair. And so she unified herself with Christ. Christ was unified with the poor. And then through her, he wanted to bring his light to them. So, I, you know, in trying to see this connection and, and understand how they both work together, I had a missionary, a friend, of mine call what mother went through, and then I think I connected it to um, St. Therese, a victimhood of love. A victimhood of love. It's that victim who is offered and who offers themselves. Why? Out of love. For those in darkness, for those mired in sin and unbelief, for those mired in poverty. And so <clears throat> there have been works done that have sort of explored this. But I bring up those two as our guides today because I want to make a question or a proposition. And again, I don't, I don't have clear evidence of this. I have some smattering of evidence that's very, very limited. But I wonder if with the darkness facing the culture and the church today, and with the potential of much more on the horizon, is the Lord calling or raising up other people to share in the same victimhood of love, in the same type of darkness? Like Therese Hidden, like Mother, you never know it. They're not going to blab it out on the streets. But good and holy people who 
certainly could be purified or not necessarily the Blessed Virgin Mary, but experiencing something above and beyond what they normally would experience, but for the salvation of the world. Father Trump is shaking his head. Do you think it's a possibility, Father? Yeah. So, why do I bring this up? Let's face it. Even for the believing person, it is not easy to believe in the world today. You just can't, people just can't say anymore, well, Jesus said so, therefore I believe it. The church said so, therefore I believe it. There are attacks coming on the faith from every side. Have you ever read Ratzinger's Introduction to Christianity? I talked about it this week. I'm teaching RCIA in the parish. And the first class was, why is it so hard to believe? Why is it such a struggle? And Introduction to Christianity, that's what he begins with. And he gives a number of stories, and, and one of them is my favorite one to talk about. It's from the philosopher Martin Buber, about this atheist. Now, he wrote this book in the late 60s. This atheist who goes to this rabbi and says, Rabbi, I'm an atheist. I don't believe. I think the Bible is a bunch of malarkey. God doesn't exist. What do you have to say to that? And the, 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 the rabbi, he was reading his Torah, shuts the book and looks at him and says, perhaps. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps it's all false. Perhaps it's all true. I can't, I can't prove it. But you know what? Perhaps it is all true. Perhaps you're wrong. You can't prove it otherwise. And so what Ratzinger says is the believer and the unbeliever share the perhaps. That tension in the faith. Particularly in today, it can be so hard to believe. He talks about how like sometimes there's the, the, the cross hanging over the sea or the abyss. And, and, and what happens is we all know it's there. We, we know that we can turn on the news or we can listen to certain people and our faith is going to be challenged. And we're scared to face over the abyss. We're scared to face the void. We're scared to go into the darkness because of what we might find there. And that's understandable. And we all, to a great degree, we're all going to experience trials of faith, struggles, questions. And this is normal and it's actually good. Faith is not vision. Faith is believing when you cannot see things. And we're all going to face that. But is God calling certain people to step into the void? To experience the darkness, not necessarily in the same way, but at least similar to what Therese and Mother Teresa did. Not so much for themselves, but for others. To willfully say, yes, I will be a victim of love. To do it for the atheists. To do it for the unbelievers, the lonely. The people who have been victims of abuse and reject the church. The abusers themselves, who maybe no longer believe in the Lord. Whatever it is, these are the ones who the Lord may choose and who have the freedom to say yes or no, I will step into the abyss. I'll walk into the void. Is this a challenge, a call the Lord is particularly calling some people today? Now, this is a quote from, from Blessed Marie Eugène. Now, this is, again, written, I think, in like in the 30s or 40s. When was I Want to See God written, Father Champagne? Before you were born. 39 or 40. Yeah, 39 or 40s. So this, is, this is back right around after World War I to the beginning of the century. Listen to what he said. Temptation against faith can be suffered by souls with a high degree of faith. To supply the redemptive suffering 
that merits for others light to walk in the way of salvation. The description given by St. Therese of the Child Jesus shows us the temptation coming from darkness and obsession, whose violence calls forth a more and more firm and tenacious ascent to truth and discloses the redemptive character of such a trial. The perfection of the virtue of faith is not measured by the peace that accompanies it. A very strong and pure faith can know great torments. So here he is saying it a long time ago. He's actually also the one that said Therese is the saint for the 20th century. And so, yes, brother. Well, I, I mean, I, that, I, I don't want to get into the dark night of the soul. Everyone has the chance to go through the dark night of the soul. The Lord wants to pure everybody by faith. But yes, people will be tempted by faith. If you're going to be tempted against charity, against purity, why wouldn't you be tempted against faith? There may be different levels of faith, but we're talking about something very, very specific here. Not just like the average, hey, I'm tempted against faith. This is a specific calling that people are called to. But the thing is, it's ironic because mostly people think, oh, well, so-and-so's faith is so strong. Everyone thought Mother Teresa's faith was so strong. And in a great sense, yeah, it was. Because she was having to believe when she couldn't see, when it was dark, she had to persevere. Because I think some people think that, 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 that faith is like, most people think that faith is sight. And it's not. Oh, this person has a strong faith, they believe. And everything is joyful and nice. No, that's, that's not what faith is. Faith is wrestling. Faith is difficult. Faith can be very, very dark and very, very, very difficult. The truth is, though, and again, I don't know if Father Champlain can attest to this, in my working with people, I'm beginning to see this a fair bit lately in certain individuals. Not a lot, but in certain individuals. Very devout, prayerful people who, have, who are avoiding grave sin, who have a prayer life that this trial doesn't come necessarily as a result of their sin, but they're experiencing intense darkness and abandonment. Not just like a little here or there. Now, without a doubt, I'm not, you know, St. John of the Cross. Maybe they're going through the dark night of the soul. And indeed, they possibly are. The Lord's certainly purifying them. And through this, they're still able to love God and love others. They, they want to keep loving, but they're confused. I'm tempted to discouragement. Why am I going through this? They understand that, 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 you know, the milk and the honey from the early days can't be expected. But they're really, really struggling. Why is this happening? And so what I found is proposing, yes, you're going to go through this like you're being purified. You're going to continue to detach from the world. The Lord could indeed be purifying you. But... There's the sense that there's something more. Now, I put, I gave to you this sheet with three quotes from Hans Urs von Balthasar from different places. It sort of talk about this. And I'm going I'm to read uh, one of them right now, or at least part of one of them. You can read these later on. They're pretty dense, as he tends to be, for your own spiritual edification. And what he's talking about, this is the one from his book on prayer, one of them, is that, when we pray, we don't pray alone. There's an ecclesial dimension of prayer. We pray as part of the body of Christ. In liturgy, we pray as the body of Christ. And in the breviary, what do we do? We're praying for the church. And so all people who pray are somewhat connected. 
And so he says, similar on the basis of this ecclesial dimension of prayer, it may happen, and often does, that the person learns things and experiences things, states of soul, difficulties, sufferings, which are not intended for him personally, but for multitudes unknown to him, whether they pray or not, or for one particular individual who is to be helped by this kind of transference. Again, it could be someone they meet, or it could be something that the Lord puts into their soul, a quasi-mystical experience. Perhaps the contemplative is being asked to bear something originally designed for someone else's penance, so that the latter can accept it with joy. Or it may be that the contemplative is to receive or undergo a spiritual insight or experience in the other's name, the fruit of which will be communicated to him through the church's process of spiritual osmosis. Spiritual osmosis, I like that. Is that we're all connected. And we're all called in a certain sense to share the other's burden. And we realize we're not just praying alone, but we're connected. And so when I say, hey, listen, I want you to continue moving forward like you're being purified, detached from sin, spend more time in prayer. But I want you to consider that the Lord might be asking you to endure this darkness as a special trial, like Therese, like Teresa, for the sake of others. Others you may know or others you may not know. To give some purpose to the suffering. And in the times that I've done that, nine times out of ten, this burden is lifted. And again, it maybe it's just psychological. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not, I can't tell these things. But they seem to be able to, it makes more sense. Or even if the darkness doesn't make sense, they realize, hey, this is not my fault. It's not my fault that all this darkness is here, that I feel like garbage, that that I feel abandoned. They much become much freer to offer it up. doesn't mean it becomes easy, but they can do it with a much greater joy, a much greater peace to, like, step into the void and not keep fighting it. You know what the fruits of this are? I have no idea. They may, we may never know. Therese didn't know. Mother Teresa arguably didn't know. But these are gifts as the victimhood. You say, I'm giving it up as a share and a participation in the darkness of the world that comes as a result of sin. And I think particularly, priests and clergy are going to be called to experience this to some degree. And Cardinal Ratzinger talks a little bit about this. And I have the quote here I'll read for you. Jesus goes into the desert to be tempted, to share in the temptations of his people and of the world, to bear our misery, to conquer the foe, and so to open the way for us to the promised land. It seems to me that all of this belongs in a particular manner to the office of the priest, to be exposed in the front line to the temptations and necessities of any given time, to suffer the sufferings of faith at a given time with others and for others. If at a certain period philosophy science and political power create obstacles to the faith, it is to be expected that priests and religious should feel it even before lay folk. Again, this is sort of mystical language that priests and religious sort of not better than anybody else, but on the front line having to experience this. And there's no doubt we are living in a time of great darkness, at least in lack of belief in God, of irreligiosity. And so, you know, priests struggling with this. And the need, of course, for that support and that, 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 that going together. 
But what I like to propose, and again, I do not fully understand charism, but I do know the community of Jesus crucified. Your charism is to stand there with Mary at the foot of the cross with Jesus Christ crucified. And it's so easy to say, well, I'm going to offer up my physical sufferings. I'm going to fast, or I've got cancer, or I'm being persecuted. All these things are good. But what about the sharing of interior darkness? I'm sure it's things that y'all have discussed before. And maybe members of the community of Jesus crucified as a whole, or maybe individuals are called to experience this in a greater way. Or it's something that maybe you'd want to pray for. Probably not. It's kind of unpleasant, I would imagine. But hey, that's why I'm not in the community of Jesus Christ. <laughs> hey, everybody's got their own vocation. <laughs> but it's something to consider. You know, so often we, we think of okay, the physical sufferings of Christ crucified, but the interior sufferings are much worse. John Henry Newman has an article, a homily I love, on the interior mental sufferings of Christ, to see what Christ went through, how he, how he experienced sin, his experience psychologically and emotionally on the cross. Because the truth is, no matter how you shake it down, no matter how you explain it, this mystical experience of the dark night of the soul or the experience of the darkness for the victimhood of love, or spiritual osmosis, or whatever the priest or the lay people in the community might be called to, it is all a sharing in the cross of Christ, particularly in its darkness and abandonment, or at least experienced abandonment. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And in the 80s and 90s, this was a pretty big theological debate. And there was a lot written about it, a lot going back and forth, focused on the consciousness of Christ. Did Jesus and his humanity have the beatific vision? When his human intellect, even though he couldn't communicate it, did he see God face to face? And the traditional teaching is yes, he did. And the question is, because the beatific vision is this great source of joy and happiness... How could he have experienced the darkness of the cross? How could he have experienced and said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We know that Christ did not have faith because he had the beatific vision. And how could he have experienced this darkness? So people going back and forth. There were some people who got they were making all these different explanations. Some people got it right, some people got it wrong. I'm not going to get into the exact details of that. But the person who really cleared it up was John Paul II and his encyclical letter, I think it was, Novo Millennio Inuente. He goes all over the place, but in one part he addresses this very specific issue. How can we say that Jesus experienced this darkness, this abandonment on the cross, when we believe he had the beatific vision? And he says to find the answer, we're going to have to go to the lived theology of the saints. And the fact that people experience the dark night of the soul, but we know we're super close to God. The closest to God and the darkness can go together. Because even though you're feeling the darkness, if it's true dark night of the soul, you're actually very, very close. You just don't see it. It's like that bright light shining in your faith. You're blinded, but everybody else could see it. No one questioned that Therese was holy. No one questioned that Mother Therese was holy. They just had a hard time seeing it. They felt abandoned. 
And so John Paul II quotes this specifically Therese. And he says, in the same way Therese lived her agony and communion with the agony of Jesus, experiencing in herself the very paradox of Jesus' own bliss and anguish. She says, in the Garden of Olives, our Lord was blessed with all the joys of the Trinity. He was blessed with the beatific vision. Yet his dying was no less harsh. It is a mystery, she says, but I assure you that on the basis of what I myself am feeling, I can understand something of it. That's profound there, the lived theology of the saints. So here she is. She experienced the darkness, but she also knew Jesus, the God was there. She knew God had not abandoned her. She was still capable of loving. She was still capable of making the act of faith. So she wasn't really abandoned, and neither was Jesus. But somehow in this mystery, he was able to experience the darkness, the darkness of the sinner, the darkness of the person alienated from God, the darkness of the unbeliever, the darkness that comes into the world because of sin. Not really abandoned by the Father, but experiencing that abandonment in the same way that he is so connected to the, to the Father. So the people who are called to share in this, assuming there are people who are called, it's a great mystery. There is that great union with Jesus. Now, looking at Christ on the cross, you go even further into the descent of the dead on Holy Saturday. Christ's descent not into hell as we know it, but what they call in the Old Testament Sheol, the realm of the underworld. And again, this was a big, and to a certain extent still is, a big theological debate. Now, where did Christ descend into hell actually, or did he descend into Sheol? Did he descend into Sheol in power or in weakness? Again, there are different sides. I think, though, that Ratzinger would probably side with weakness, and there's some really powerful stuff that he has written on that. But basically, no matter how you see it, Jesus descending to the dead, if you see it as in weakness, powerlessness, he is in solidarity with the sinner, in solidarity with that who, person who feels abandoned, cut off from God. He not really is, but he's there in solidarity. And so this flips it, and which makes it so important for us, because we've been talking about being in solidarity in our own darkness with others who are sinners, and with Jesus, and uni uniting our sufferings to Christ, or sharing in it. But guess what? In Christ's abandonment on the cross and his descent to the dead, he is there with us. When we're feeling lonely, when we're feeling abandoned, when we're feeling cast off, he's there in the midst of the darkness. We may not see him, we not, may not feel him, but in faith we know he's there. And that's how far he was willing to go into the pits of our darkness and despair. How do we understand it? How do we explain it? I, I can't. Tell you some books you can go read, but it's a great mystery. So even the lowest we can go without cutting ourselves willfully off from God, Jesus is there. I'm not going to advocate Jesus went to the actual hell. But he did the lowest we can go in the feeling despair that Jesus Christ is there, and he calls us to be there with him so we can be with others who share that same suffering. So what do we do then? I'm sort of trying to begin to wrap this up. What do we do when we're faced with not just sin, but manifested in darkness, in the world, in the church, in our own lives? How do, how do, we, how do we connect? 
And I'm going to offer three, three things that we need to do. And you can kind of imagine, here we are in the midst of it. We put ourselves in the midst of the darkness, whether or not it's the, the darkness engulf, seemingly engulfing the church, the darkness of our own lives, the darkness of the, like of the victimhood of love, whatever it is, that we're there. The first is we've we got to remember. A Greek word is anamnesis, to go back and remember the past. Because there was the time of consolation. There was the time of milk and honey. There was the time of good things. But we've now passed the desert. And it's so tempted to forget that and to be tempted to despair and to think we're never going to get out of it. But Israel, when they were going to their desert at the time of trial, they were always said, we've got to remember what happened. We can't forget who we are and where we came from. And so the consolations that maybe happened years ago, the love that we know, the experience of the merciful love of the Father that may not seem present now, they still exist and they can act as anchors through our time of trial. Beacons in the darkness, if you will. And say, we know where we came from, and therefore we know the Lord is going to take care of us and you know we're gonna, he's going to see us out of this darkness. We can't lose hope. So that, that always trying to remember is a source of hope. Number two, and this is the most important, and this is what Therese teaches us and what Mother teaches us. I don't care how dark it gets. I don't care how ominous it seems on the horizon for the church, if there's open persecution, if you are mired into the darkness of the worst atheist, if the temptations against faith assail you, if it goes on for five years or 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, you can still love. You can still love. You can still make that choice to love God and to love others. Therese knew that. Mother Teresa knew it. They didn't say, oh, everything's so dark. I'm going to go sit in my pity party and be miserable. I'm going to go sit on the couch and drink a martini and be in solidarity with Jesus and Sheol. He didn't say that. <laughs> we can still love. What happens is that darkness comes in. It doesn't have to get into our heart. We can still choose to love. Therese said, if you only knew what darkness I am plunged into, everything has disappeared in me, and I am left with love alone. Love alone. So no matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad it seems, we can still love other people. We can still be beacons of God's merciful love. And in fact, that may be the only thing that gets you through. Giving and receiving love. Because there are other people there too. And so I'm not against it. I mean, if that darkness descends, if you're going through this, the Lord's not going to ban you. He's going to put people in your life that will receive you. You may not get the consolations in prayer, but he's not going to kick you completely to the curb. Don't be afraid to go back to those sources, but more importantly, to be able to find joy in loving other. That love is a light in the darkness, in the hovels, just as Mother Teresa understood. And then finally, you got to persevere. You got to trudge through the muck, you got to trudge through the darkness. Not expecting results, not asking like a kid in the car, oh, when is the ride going to be over? Because the more you do that, the worse it's going to be. You've got to let go and say, Lord, i got no control of this. 
I've tried to get rid of the darkness. I've done novenas. I've gone to retreats. I've done healing prayer. I've gone to confession. I've made 20 consecrations. It's still there. I give up. This is obviously what you want from me. It stinks. I don't like it, but I'm going to press through. I'm going to persevere, particularly in prayer, not looking for results, not demanding anything. The Lord sometimes is going to be happy with you just sitting there and saying, Lord, i got nothing else to give you, but I'm here. I'm trying to love you, and I wish I could know your love for me. So Balthazar says, when surrounded by apparent meaninglessness, therefore, we cannot ask to be given a calming sense of meaning. All we can do is wait and endure, quite still, like the crucified, not seeing anything facing the dark abyss of death. Beyond the abyss, there waits for us something that, at present, we cannot see, nor can we even manage to regard it as true, namely a further abyss of light in which all the world's pain is treasured and cherished and the ever hope and heart of God. So that's the destination. It's heaven, the light that never ends, not the abyss of darkness, the abyss of light. But we've got to go through this. And if we do go through it, and it is somewhat redemptive, and again, I'm not saying everybody goes through this, and I would hope nobody would go through this, because it's probably not very, very pleasant, is that you're going to bring other people with you, whether you know it or not. And the Lord needs those victim souls. He calls certain people. But the thing is, is you've got to persevere. You've got to have hope. You can't give up, because there is something on the other side. There's the beach there. You just don't see it. It's like you're traveling on the train, and you've got to go through the tunnel that goes under the big mountain. And it's dark, and you're wondering, when is it going to end? And if you freak out, it's just going to make it worse. The train's taking you. You've got to trust the Lord is taking you to the end. And to know that sin does not win, darkness does not have the last word. We've got to let go. We've got to let the train take us. So again, you know, I'm not sure what the future holds for the church or for the world. I know things will eventually get better and the storm clouds will pass. But I think, particularly for those who are specifically called to it, but even if you're not specifically called, Everyone can, in some way, shape, or form, through victimhood, solidarity, osmosis, face the darkness, deal with sin in the church by offering up our own lives, our own love, our own trials, darkness, and suffering for the good of the church and for those trapped in the abyss. In doing so, we can bring light, love, and redemption. And so for our homework, I mean, by my father, that's just so heavy. I want to homework, go, go to bed early. Uh, you know, I, again, certainly read the quotes if you, you choose to do so. But I look at it. I mean, think of your own self. I mean, where is there darkness that you see in your life, in your family, in the world? And what is your attitude towards it? Do we let the darkness win? Do we destroy that sense of hope? Do we think that things are not going to get better? More than that, particularly for those who may feel, hey, this is something I've been called to. You've been talking about your spiritual director or experiencing darkness of whatever sort. I mean, it can be a but. I'm not saying everybody here is John of the Cross or Mother Teresa. But whatever, we all face our own individual types of darkness. 
instead of fighting against it, to be able to let go and to offer it for something. It could be for vocations. It could be for our atheist family members. It could be for whatever, to find some purpose for it uh, and ask the Lord and maybe to enlighten what that might be uh, so that we can persevere and come to know the light and love of Christ. Amen.